it's time for February birthday shoutouts. February is such a full month with Valentine's Day and the Super Bowl and me getting my wisdom teeth out. And I'll say a couple of those things are good, but I have a bunch of things that are even better. And those are happy birthdays to my Patreon supporters who are celebrating this February. I want to say a very happy birthday to Laura, Greg, Emily, Marissa, Lori, Jennifer, Carson, Susanna, Katie, Megan, Dominic, and Nikki. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon, and I hope you have a wonderful birthday. When a woman was murdered in her apartment, the police told her neighbors to call in any tip they had, no matter how small it may seem. But when one man called in about a dream he had, he landed himself at the top of the suspect list. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Hello and welcome to Crime Lines. There are just a few weeks between now and the Albuquerque live show, and info for that is in the description box slash show notes, as well as links to CrimeCon UK in London and the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival, which will be in Austin. Also, links to all my social media is down there, as well as my website, My 2023 goal is to get content out on all of those platforms regularly. So if you do want some shorter cold case content and general true crime discussions, Amber Alerts, all of that, check those out. Let's get into this week's episode, which was suggested by Susan, so thank you for sending it over. It's an interesting case with some legal oddities and shaky forensics, all things I'm interested in exploring. If you have a case suggestion, the best way to send it over to me is email, and that's crimelinespodcast at gmail.com. One of the unfortunate things about this case we are covering is that I couldn't find out a lot about the victim, and that's not unusual in this time period of true crime reporting. Most reporting on cases from the 70s and the 80s is focused on the accused, not the victim. So unless there has been a more recent retrospective look at the case on a show like Dateline, or there was a book written about the case, there often isn't a lot about the victim published unless it's sensational. So what I have been able to learn through searching vital records is that Karen Ann Phillips was born on April 4th, 1956 in Rutherford County, North Carolina. That's about an hour and a half west of Charlotte. Her parents were named Russell and Ethel, and based on her obituary and these vital records, it appears she was an only child. It's not clear when or why Karen moved to Illinois, but by 1980, Karen was 24 years old and living on her own in a ground floor studio apartment in Oak Park, Illinois, which is just outside of Chicago. She worked as a nurse's aide in the Illinois Medical District on the west side of Chicago, and she was a student nurse. She also attended the Kriya Yoga Temple, where she was reportedly training to become a Swami. A Swami is a spiritual teacher or guru who puts aside worldly ambition to instead focus on the spiritual. 
Most of Karen's closest friends appear to have come from the temple as well. On Friday, October 3, 1980, Karen went to her nursing classes at the hospital and a classmate drove her home. Soon after, she left again to go to the temple. She was home by 10.30 p.m., and we know this because her friend Helene had reached out by phone at this point. Karen and Helene didn't talk for long, but they did make plans to go shopping the next morning. When Karen didn't show up for the shopping trip, Helene asked her husband to go to Karen's apartment to check on her. He knocked, but got no response. So he called the fire department, who arrived and forced entry. On entering the apartment, they found Karen's body lying face down on the floor. They backed out, and the Oak Park police were called. This was an obvious homicide. Karen had multiple abrasions, and her head was covered in blood. She was found undressed, with her nightgown either pushed up around her neck or wrapped around her neck. It's been described both ways. Both of Karen's hands were found in an unusual position. The index finger and thumb on each hand were together in an O shape. There were no signs of forced entry or robbery. It was pretty clear that this was a sexually motivated crime. On autopsy, it was determined that the cause of death was a combination of a beating and strangulation. Swabs were taken from Karen's body and sent to the lab. They were also able to take hairs out of Karen's hands from the carpet beneath her body and hairs that were not hers from her pubic area. Though the murder weapon was not found in her apartment, it was found nearby. It was found on a search of the bushes outside the building, and they found a tire iron with blood and hair on it. The investigators then spoke with Karen's friend, Helene, who was the last person to talk to her on the phone and the first one to raise the alarm that something was wrong. Helene told the police about Karen's previous night, their plans for Saturday morning, and she was, at some point, asked about the position of Karen's hands. Helene also attended the same temple as Karen. Helene told the police that she recognized that O shape as the Om sign, which in Hindu is incredibly important. Helene said that it signified the search for peace, and she interpreted this as an acceptance of death on Karen's part. In canvassing the neighborhood, the police spoke with Karen's next-door neighbor, Mohammed, whose ear witness testimony helped set the time of death. He said he heard voices and a pounding noise from Karen's apartment in the overnight hours, sometime between 12.45 and 1 a.m. He went over to her place and knocked on the door with the intention of telling Karen and her guest to keep the noise down. He was under the impression that there was an argument going on, but he couldn't make out what was being said. After Muhammad knocked, the sounds stopped. He waited a minute, but no one answered the door, so he went back to his apartment. The noise briefly started up again, but the voices were whispers this time. Soon enough, it all stopped. 
There were no other witnesses to any noises, and no one saw anyone come or go from Karen's apartment. As the investigators spoke to neighbor after neighbor, they encouraged people to call if they thought of anything. Even if it seemed insignificant to them, they should call the tip in and let the police decide what was important. Two days later, on October 6th, someone did call. 26-year-old Stephen Linscott told the police that he may know something about the murder, not because he saw anything, but because he had dreamed about it. Stephen lived in the building next to Karen's. Karen was in an apartment building, but Stephen, his wife, and his three kids lived in a home, which was run as a Christian halfway house. Stephen counseled ex-convicts at the home, and he and his wife acted sort of like house parents, supervising the men living there. He said that around 1 a.m. on Saturday morning, he dreamed about a murder. It was vivid enough that it woke him up. He didn't mention it to the police when they were canvassing the neighborhood because it was just a dream. He did mention it to a friend on Sunday, and then after he saw an article about Karen's murder in Monday's paper, he told his wife about it. Both his friend and his wife thought he should go to the police with it and let them decide if it was relevant or not. It wasn't the first time Stephen had had a dream that he believed was based in some kind of reality. He wasn't necessarily calling himself a psychic, but he had seen previous evidence that he had some type of intuition in this dream realm. The officer Stephen talked to on the phone said to go ahead and write down the details of the dream and they would get back to him later. So Stephen wrote down everything he could remember. Basically, the dream was about two people sitting in a living room late at night. They were chatting and everything was fine, but suddenly the man's mood darkened. Then he pulled out a long object. The jarring change in mood actually woke Stephen up. He got out of bed to walk around the room a minute, shake off the emotion of the dream, and then he climbed back into bed. But as soon as he dozed off, the dream continued where it had left off. The man in the dream was still holding the long object, and he smiled in a way that Stephen interpreted as a straight-line smile with evil intent. Stephen wrote that the man then beat the other person with the object. Stephen noticed that the victim didn't fight back or block the blows, and it confused them on why they wouldn't. As promised, the investigators followed up with Stephen that very night. After they read Stephen's report on the dream, he was asked about the murder weapon. He hadn't given much detail about it. Stephen said that was because it wasn't clear enough in the dream for him to really know what it was. Stephen also hadn't written down much about the victim, but that was because he was more focused on the man in the dream. Except for the police telling him that the victim was a woman, he wouldn't have known that based solely on his dream. He did have the impression that the victim was black, though Karen was white. Because Stephen was focused on the man, he was able to describe him with some detail. He said he was white, had straight blonde hair, was in his 20s, and was about 5'5 five five to 5'7 five with a husky build. And it didn't escape the investigator's attention in that moment 
that Stephen had somewhat described himself. Though he was taller, being around six feet tall, he also had a husky build, straight blonde hair, and fair skin. Stephen then went on to describe the man's clothing, which were brown pants and a terry cloth shirt with two or three stripes across the chest and on the arms. They thanked Stephen for his help and asked if he would be willing to continue to work with them, and Stephen said yes. He left, and the police began looking into Stephen Linscott, not as some kind of psychic witness, but as a suspect. They learned that Stephen was from Maine, and after high school, he had spent two years at the University of Maine before he enlisted in the Navy. As a radioman, Stephen had special clearances, and the three levels of clearance all required background checks. He met all of the requirements and eventually had top-secret clearance. Aside from a speeding ticket one time, Stephen had no negative interactions with the police. In the spring of 1979, Stephen was honorably discharged, and he, his wife, and their children moved back to Maine. They then moved to the Chicago area so Stephen could study at Emmaus Bible College where he was still a student. They spent the summer of 1980 in Maine with family and returned to Oak Park a month before the murder. Stephen worked counseling men who were trying to get back on their feet after having been incarcerated, and he had his family living on site. There was nothing in Stephen's background that threw up any red flags. But coming forward with a dream seemed like a way to either insert himself into the investigation or to unburden some of his guilt without outright confessing and going to prison. On Wednesday, October 8th, the police called Stephen and asked him to come in for an interview. This would be the first recorded interview. It was the first recorded, but it was actually his third interview. He had spoken to the police by phone and talked to them in his home, but none of that was recorded. As soon as Stephen walked into the station that day, the investigators took note of what he was wearing. Stephen said that in his dream, the killer was wearing a terry cloth shirt with two or three stripes across the chest and the sleeve. Well, then he went to the police station wearing a terry cloth shirt. And while it didn't have a stripe across the front, it did have a stripe on the sleeve. That alone probably wouldn't have seemed significant, but they had already noticed that he resembled the man he described in the dream in other ways. So the investigator sat Stephen down to talk to him. He thought as a witness, but to at least some degree, the police were thinking he was a possible suspect. They had him go over the account of his dream yet again. Stephen was asked for some more specific details as needed, like about the murder weapon, which he described as dark, metallic, and, quote, tapered down on one end and rounded at the other, end quote but Stephen did not know what this object was. Stephen also said that the murder occurred in a large living room and the victim and the killer were sitting on a couch. 
He also said he remembered there being a stereo in the living room. But then they led Stephen into some more fuzzy areas, like his impressions from the dream and his, for lack of a better word, psychic intuition. Stephen said he had the impression that the victim, Karen, knew her killer. She wasn't alarmed by his presence, and they were sitting talking comfortably for a length of time prior to the attack. Stephen said he didn't know what they were talking about or exactly how long they were talking, but it may have been around 20 minutes into the conversation when the killer pulled out the murder weapon from behind his back. Stephen also said he believed Karen was a religious person, which was true. The investigators had seen a shrine at her apartment, so they knew this, but Stephen hadn't mentioned the shrine at all. But it does seem, on the surface, curious that Stephen knew she was a religious person when he supposedly had never met her and never went to her apartment. But this is where some context around this interview really comes in. Stephen didn't offer up out of the blue that the victim in his dream was religious. He said it in response to a direct question about it, so he pretty much had a 50-50 chance of being right. After the interrogators really indicated to Stephen that they believed he may have something close to psychic abilities, they then asked him questions about the profile of the killer. They wanted to hear about Stephen's impressions on the killer's psychological profile, as well as his personal life. This was clearly outside the scope of anything in Stephen's dream, and the police definitely did not think Stephen was psychic. They believed he might be the attacker, and they wanted to keep him talking so that he would inadvertently give up more and more. Stephen told the police multiple times that he didn't have any specific insight but he could deduce things from what he saw in his dream and his own understanding of psychology. Again, like with the statement that Karen was religious, Stephen was led through this with a lot of yes or no type questions, like was the killer married? Stephen answered it was possible he was married at one point. He based this on how comfortable the murderer sat and talked with a woman. He didn't think a man who hadn't been in a serious relationship at some point, would have been that comfortable sitting and talking to someone of the opposite sex. He was asked if the killer had children, and again, it was kind of a wishy-washy, it's possible kind of answer. Stephen was asked if the killer felt remorse, and he said he hoped so, but the attacker might have been the type who could, quote, put it away. In other words, compartmentalize, which is a common feature we know in killers. Then the investigator asked Stephen if the killer would, quote, unconsciously want to be caught. This question was a direct shot at Stephen, coming forward with the story about this dream, which the police thought was covering for confessing. But Stephen didn't realize this. He answered, quote, I think so. I used to be a psych major, and I know that some people will subconsciously leave a trace, you know, end quote. Before the end of the interview, they asked Stephen if his psychic abilities could work in the other direction. Could he send a message out to the killer? And if he tried that, how would they know it worked? Did he think the killer would call the police? 
Stephen said it was possible, quote, stranger things have happened. After this, Stephen went home, still unaware he was a suspect. He was then brought back in voluntarily again on October 10th for another recorded interview. This time, the assistant state's attorney was there, and Stephen was asked to recount his dream yet again, and his story was the same as it had previously been. After he finished the retelling, Stephen was asked if he would provide hair, blood, and saliva samples. He agreed and was escorted to the hospital by the police to give these samples. It wasn't until they got back to the station, after all of that, that Stephen was told he was a suspect in the murder of Karen Phillips. Stephen was blindsided. He thought he was helping the police this entire time and likely would have thought twice about talking to them and certainly giving samples of biological material if he knew he was a suspect. He would have at least wanted to consult an attorney. Stephen denied he had anything to do with the murder to the police and the state's attorney. He was then released without charge while the forensic evidence went to the lab. It was eight weeks after the murder that the police showed back up and arrested 26-year-old Stephen Linscott. They charged him with one count of rape and one count of murder. The evidence the state had to support this arrest was the dream and the forensics. We are pre-DNA technology, so we're talking hair analysis and blood typing. Karen had been sexually assaulted, so we have to talk about something that was used in court pre-DNA, and that is secretors versus non-secretors. I have to say, secretor is not one of my favorite words, like in the way a lot of people don't like the word moist, so we are just going to have some exposure therapy with this word today. 80% of people are secretors, meaning you can detect their ABO blood type in other bodily fluids like saliva and semen. The other 20% are called non-secretors. So if you have a semen sample and you cannot get blood type from it, it came from a non-secretor. So if a suspect is also a non-secretor, it's not a slam dunk, but it could be a piece of a larger case. But it's definitely one of those pieces of evidence that is much better at excluding people than including them because 20% of the population is a large number of people. In this case, they didn't have a specific semen sample. What they had was vaginal fluid, which was a mix of Karen's fluids and the assailant's biological material. Karen had type O blood, and that was all that was found in the fluid taken from her body. The state decided that this meant the attacker was a non-secretor, and Stephen, who had type AB blood, was also a non-secretor. What the state was ignoring here was the other possibility, that the killer could have been a secretor with type O blood, and that's why only one blood type was detected. So now we're moving from 20% of the population of non-secretors up to 45% of people with type O blood, whether positive or negative. And when you're talking 45% of the male population, it's not good evidence to include or really exclude very many. But even ignoring that the killer may have had type O blood, this secretor-non-secretor thing 
still included a lot of people who were not Stephen Linscott. So the state bolstered the forensics with hair comparisons. The state found that several hairs, both head and pubic, found at the crime scene were consistent with the samples taken from Stephen. The state's expert was using a study that showed that 1 in 4,500 people would have consistent head hairs when compared, and 1 in 800 would have consistent pubic hairs. However, the state was misusing this study. The study compared hairs across 40 characteristics. The state only checked 8 to 12. How they applied hair analysis in this case took an already shaky forensic method and made it straight-up junk science. It's also worth noting that there were several hairs in the apartment not consistent with Stephen. So that's the forensic evidence going into court. Let's get into the dream evidence, which I really hate to call evidence. But the state would go on to use this dream at trial as a confession. And as a confession, we know that it's only as good as the evidence that backs it up. So we'll first go over the ways the dream was consistent with the murder, and then we'll go over the ways it's different. First, Stephen knew details about Karen, like how she was young and lived alone. He also knew she had some post-high school education, and he knew this in spite of claiming to not know Karen. He also knew a few details about the crime scene, like how Karen was killed in her living room. That was true, but in fairness, we need to remember it's a studio apartment, so it was essentially all one room. He also knew there was a stereo in the room, but again, in fairness to Stephen, it was 1980. Most 20-somethings had stereos in their living rooms. As for the details of the actual murder, the basic description of the murder weapon was mostly correct as was the fact that Karen was beaten with the object in a downward direction and was hit mostly around her head and shoulders. Stephen also said that the attack was just six feet into the apartment and that there was blood spatter everywhere. That's largely consistent. Stephen also said that it struck him in his dream that the woman seemingly just allowed the attack to happen like she accepted it. The state interpreted Karen's handshape, the om sign, to indicate that she did, in fact, accept that she was going to die. So now, let's get into the ways the dream didn't match the evidence. First, the victim. Stephen said he was more focused on the attacker, so he didn't have many details about the victim. Like I said before, except for the police telling him he wasn't even sure of the gender. But Stephen did give one detail from his dream about the victim. He had the impression she was black. Karen Phillips was white. As for the crime itself, Stephen said the victim was beaten, but the autopsy showed that Karen was beaten, strangled, and raped. He didn't mention the strangling or the sexual assault. As for the crime scene, Stephen got most of it wrong. He told the police that the living room was very large, as big as his own four-room apartment. But it was only 10 by 12. He got the stereo right, but he also said there was a couch. There was not. Being that this was a studio apartment, Karen opted not to have one. But she did have a shrine, which he did not mention. 
asked directly about religious items in the room, Stephen said he didn't notice any in his dream. So those are the aspects of the dream we can discuss through evidence. What can't be confirmed one way or the other is his description of the killer. The investigators believed, and the state's attorney was ready to argue at trial, that Stephen was describing himself. And if that was true, he got the short blonde hair and light complexion right. Also, his profile that the killer might be a family man. The killer wore a terry cloth shirt with stripes, something Stephen also owned. And Stephen was bold enough, or naive enough, or innocent enough to wear that shirt to the police station. The state would also use some other comments Stephen made to the police against him. Stephen would argue it was naivety that had him making these statements. Like when he told the police that after his dream, he checked to see if his arms were sore because the killer would have sore arms the next day. His arms weren't sore, but this was a little crack that made it look like Stephen was considering his own guilt. And then when Stephen was confronted with the hairs at the crime scene, the only explanation he offered was that the devil put them there. And maybe within his belief system, that made sense, but the police don't accept Satan as a reasonable alternative suspect. There is something about the dream that wasn't brought up at trial, but gives us something very important in understanding what happened here. And that is a little bit of context. Stephen gave it in a 1994 interview with the LA Times. He was living with his family in a halfway house where he counseled ex-convicts. The area, at the time at least, was high crime, drug-filled, and violent. It was stressful for a young father from Maine to adjust to this, so his dream, while coincidentally happening on the night of an actual murder, wasn't an unusual nightmare to have under these circumstances. And by the time he spoke to the police about his dream, he had spoken to them briefly about the murder during their knock and talk, He had talked to his neighbors about the murder, he had talked to a friend about it, and he talked to his wife. On top of that, he read about it in the paper, so how much of his memory of his dream was really his true memory, and how much was influenced by information that came after? Stephen insisted he did not kill Karen Phillips, and he couldn't have done it because he had an alibi. He was home and in bed with his wife. And his wife did back this up to some extent. She said she went to bed around 10 p.m., and though she wasn't sure when Stephen went to bed, she was up in the overnight hours with the kids and finally got up for good around 6 a.m. Stephen was asleep both of the times she woke up. An alibi from a devoted wife isn't exactly a neutral alibi, but that's the problem with alibis. We spend most of our time with those closest to us, the people a jury might think would lie to protect us. At trial, the state told the jury that they had direct evidence and a confession that proved Stephen guilty beyond any doubt. And by confession, they were talking about the dream. One detail about Stephen's dream that came up at trial and not before was that an officer testified that Stephen told him the murder weapon was specifically a tire iron. He said it happened on the phone when Stephen initially called him. Stephen denied he ever said this, and it's not in his written statement or in his recorded interviews. 
The opposite, in fact. He specifically said he didn't know what the murder weapon was. After hearing this testimony and everything else we've already talked about, the jury deliberated for nine and a half hours. They came back with a split verdict. They acquitted Stephen on the rape charge, but they convicted him of murder. How they separated those two charges under the same theory of the crime is unclear, but Stephen, who had been free on bond, was immediately taken into custody. After the trial, the prosecutor's office got a number of threatening phone calls. Stephen had strong support during the trial from those he attended the Bible college with, and they were very vocal at the courthouse. And when you add in these threatening phone calls afterwards, it was so much that they had additional security at the sentencing hearing. And at sentencing, Stephen maintained his innocence and said that in the end, God would justify him. Stephen was then sentenced to 40 years in prison and was sent five hours away to serve his time. So his wife Lois packed up the kids, moved closer to the prison so they could visit, and got a job as a nurse to support herself and their three children. Lois told the LA Times that she tried to balance defending Stephen to their children, but not teaching them that the police were bad just that they made a big mistake and thought that their dad had hurt someone. Stephen immediately filed an appeal in this case, and shockingly, he had his conviction overturned on his first shot. In 1985, the appellate court ruled that there was not enough evidence to support the conviction. Not only was the verdict reversed, Stephen was allowed out on bond to wait on the new trial. But of course, the state appealed the appellate court's decision, and while the state Supreme Court didn't reverse the appellate court's decision, they did send the case back for them to address some additional issues raised by the state. They did that, and in 1987, the appellate court, in a two-to-one decision, overturned the conviction again, stating that the prosecutor had, quote, made up the ties to the crime scene by overstating the surety of the forensic evidence. They ordered a new trial again. The state again appealed and it went to the state Supreme Court again. This time, the Supreme Court agreed with the appellate court. And here are some of the reversible errors they found. One was that the assistant state's attorney told the jury straight out that Karen had been raped by someone whose blood type cannot be detected in semen and Stephen was one person who fit into that relatively rare group. This was erroneous across the board. I've already mentioned that it's 20% of the population that are non-secretors, so even if it was true that only a non-secretor could have committed this crime, 20% of the population is hardly rare. But the truth was that the person could also have had type O blood, the most common blood type in the U.S., They also found that the prosecutor misstated the evidence from their own expert. The hair analysis witness testified that the person could not be positively identified based on hair alone. They could only find similarities. Yet in the closing statement, the prosecutor told the jury that the hairs were Stevens. As far as the dream went, the state Supreme Court ruled that it did not fit the definition of a confession, even though the state labeled it that way. 
A confession is a voluntary acknowledgement of guilt, and Stephen never said he was guilty or even implied it. And nothing in his dream, even if it was a confession, directly tied him to the crime. Though the state argued Stephen had specific knowledge known only to the killer, he most certainly did not. Prior to telling the police about his dream, an article ran in the paper that gave most of the details Stephen knew about Karen. He said she had some education after high school. The article referred to her as a nurse's aide. He said she lived alone, and so did the article. He said she seemed to know her attacker, and the article had said the same thing, but they based it on the lack of forced entry. The article said that Karen was bludgeoned and hit in the head with a blunt instrument, and that's what Stephen said happened. The court noted that only one detail stood out that Stephen had no way of knowing or really guessing, and that was that Karen accepted her death. But rather than finding fault in Stephen's statement, they found that it was with the investigator's assumption that the position of her hands in the um symbol meant that she passively accepted her fate. Maybe that was just how her hands ended up. Maybe she fought back, but then made the um hand shape when she realized she was dying. And in my view, I'd wonder if the killer was someone she knew through the temple. Someone who would have placed her hands in that position, possibly in an act of remorse, like how a killer will cover the body or cross the arms. The state Supreme Court ruled 4-0 to that the prosecutors did not prove Stephen guilty beyond a reasonable doubt when you looked at the actual evidence and not just what the state said the evidence was. Now, through all of this back and forth, Stephen was allowed to remain out on bond, but he wasn't truly free. The court could have ruled against him and sent him back to prison at any point in this process. And now he was facing another trial. And remember, trial didn't go so well for him the first time. But a big change happened between the time of this murder and the time of the appeal. DNA testing became possible. With Stevens' new trial scheduled for July 1992, the state submitted the physical evidence for DNA testing. And when it came back, they dropped the charges against Stephen Linscott. According to the state, the results were inconclusive. Without that conclusive match, they couldn't take it to trial and get a conviction. However, other sources say the DNA cleared Stephen. Though the state wouldn't declare him innocent at the time, pretty much everyone else did. And the state did eventually come around. In December 2002, Illinois Governor George Ryan pardoned Stephen based on innocence, which entitled him to compensation for his wrongful conviction. Stephen had spent 12 years actively dealing with this case, starting with his arrest and ending with the dropping of charges. He dealt with an additional decade living under a cloud of suspicion until the governor declared him innocent. And the worst part of this entire time span was the three and a half years he spent in prison for a murder he did not commit. And for Karen Phillips' family, her parents died in 1999 and 2001 never knowing who killed their daughter. Stephen said his only crime was being naive. He told the Associated Press something that I think is profound and something we need to think about often. He said, quote, You have to force the system to do its job. You need to kick it in the rear end. Even then, innocent people 
get harmed. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. 